there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Blondie's Rapture took the number one spot from Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. Anchorman Walter Cronkite said goodbye to America. RCA launched their much-typed RCA Select Division video disc system. And Ronald Reagan started to settle into his role as president. Then on March 30th, the day before the Oscars, Ronald Reagan was shot in the chest by John Hinckley outside the Washington Hilton Hotel. And that is nothing compared to the weird and wild assortment of movies that were also in theaters in March of 1981. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McWeeny, and welcome to 80s All Over. This is uh, the March 1981 episode, and I'm joined, as always, by Scott Weinberg, my co-host. Hi, it's me, Scott. We're going to get started quickly today. We've got a fairly dense list. Some of these movies are barely worth discussion, though. This is what we're going to encounter with some of these months is they're going to be loaded. But, man, there's some weird filler that just kind of uh, pads out the uh, theatrical run for some of these things. Um, But first, real quick. See oops, up. We pulled a couple of boners this time. Um, I, I did it last time by not uh, giving the name of the book Hellraisers. Then in the correction, I referred to them all as British actors. That is obviously not correct. Harris, Richard Harris was Irish. Peter O'Toole was British Irish. Richard Burton was Welsh. And Oliver Reed was the one Englishman on that list. So there we go. We've got them credited properly. Also, it was Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express. Peter Ustinov played the character Hercule Poirot in Death on the Nile. And finally, Richard Petty's last victory was at the 84 Daytona 500, evidently. So I had that wrong as well. Let's get moving and see what mistakes I can make this week. It took a while to track this one down. I finally ended up buying a dvd of it and boy i am not happy to be stuck with all night long barbara streisand gene hackman i don't understand my son i don't understand my wife i don't understand myself together they do it all all night long are you expecting anyone at four in the morning as you and I talked about over the last several weeks, certain movies kind of just vanish. And, and a lot of times it's because it's not a hit and it doesn't have a star, but then you come across a weird movie like all night long, which made a decent amount of money and stars Gene Hackman and Barbara Streisand and Dennis Quaid. This movie shouldn't be obscure. Like uh, the day the clown cried, it shouldn't be that hard to find. Well, there's a there's a reason for that. And this was this is one of those movies where the behind the scenes story was such an apocalyptic nightmare that the film itself really never stood a chance because the studio that released it hated it by the time they finally put it out. This was a screenplay by W.D. Richter, who a lot of us probably know best for uh, Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Um, but it was kind of a hot script at the time, and there were a number of stars that wanted to be in it. Jean-Claude Tremont, who was a French television director, had signed to make the film. It was his first American movie. And his wife was the power agent, Sue Mengers, who represented Barbara Streisand. When they started making this film, they actually started with a different co-star for Gene Hackman, who we're going to talk about later in this episode because of a role she played in a great movie called Cutter's Way. But this actress, uh, she wasn't a movie star, and Sue Menger started pressuring her husband to replace the lead actress with Barbara because they needed a bigger star. And she wanted her husband's first film to have a big movie star. By doing that, not only did she break the movie, but she ruined that relationship. She ended up never representing Barbara again, and they basically never spoke because the movie was a disaster when it finally came out. Yeah, it's about a uh, an executive who gets demoted to running an all-night pharmacy who realizes that his son is having an affair 
with a married woman and then he tries to stop the relationship and then he falls for the married woman who is also his son's cousin. Then it basically becomes another one of those middle-aged crazy serial type, oh, isn't it hilarious that a man is going through a midlife crisis? And if it wasn't for the likable uh, performances by Hackman and Streisand and young Dennis Quaid, this would be one of the worst films we've covered yet. It's terrible. well, and the the worst part about it is like you can tell that what they want is they want the the world of the grocery store to be kind of chaotic and hilarious place with all these eccentric weirdos that come in every night. Man, it is phony from the very beginning. Like there is nothing real about the people that come into the store. They're all sitcom actors doing sitcom shtick. It's a bummer. It it really is. And there's a weird scene in the middle of the movie where there's a bodybuilder woman who tries to rob the store and then they like beat her up and throw her at a cooler and a crazy ugly slapstick sequence in a movie that it's like, wait, what did I just sit on my remote and turn on a different movie? Well, and the craziest thing, this was the most money anybody had ever made to be in a film. The money that they paid Barbara Streisand. That's mind boggling to me that this was ever that movie. And it really does say a lot about the way the business has changed, that at the time she might earn that money for this kind of film. These days, that would never happen. It would never be like some middling romantic comedy would break the record for the most money ever paid to an actor. And Barbara Streisand is so wrong for this on every level that you had to wonder what she was thinking. Like she had to have felt like she wasn't the right person for this. They're both yeah. wildly miscast. I mean, Hackman can be romantic and can be funny. Streisand, um, know, maybe not the most versatile actor in the world, but certainly a good, good actor. They both do a fine job and, and the rest of the film is just aimless. All right. Well, Let's move on to the next one then. And uh, I think you got this intro. What is this oh, one? Oh, boy. Uh, I am introducing an atrocious film starring the Love Boats, Lauren Tews, and the amazing Jennifer Jason Lee. It is a forgotten slasher called Eyes of a Stranger. This is a terrible, terrible movie. You know what bothers me most about this? We've talked about the idea that rape is frequently used simply as an excuse to include nudity in a movie, in exploitation films. And it's a really gross way to kind of reverse engineer nudity into your film. I'm not a fan of that to begin with. But this movie is totally leaden, except in the moments where the rape scenes are happening. And it feels like the director woke up for those scenes, which bothers me more because there is something really unpleasant and leering and hands-on and gross about the rape scenes in this film. And there's way too many of them. It really does double back to show you a long sequence for every one of the murders. Yeah, part of that, I think, is that, okay, in 1981, social reactions to the issue of rape weren't the same as they are now. It's one of those issues that if you're going to include it, you should be sensitive about the way you include it, even if it's in a scary movie or even especially if it's in a mainstream horror film. And this is a, a horrible film. It's written by uh, one of the gentlemen who worked on the first few Friday the 13th movies named Ron Kurz is an uncredited writer on the first Friday. At the time, I thought critics were way out of line when they would call slasher movies uh, misogynistic and base and low. Like, the, the, the problems that Gene Siskel, for example, had with Friday the 13th, I, I could see it if you had a problem with him in a film like this. It's strange because the movie is structured like a, a mystery. There's this mystery that it's built around where the younger sister went through some trauma when she was younger and it left her deaf and mute, but she's not really deaf and mute. She just doesn't talk or right. It's like a psychosomatic psychologically induced. And then, and she's got everything. She's deaf. She's blind. She's mute. And the, part that is truly insane is that in the final sequence of the movie he sexually assaults her vision back into working yeah forget the fact that it's just a very dull inept lazy movie it's morally bankrupt and this is coming from somebody who ha i will defend most of the horror films from the 1980s eyes of a stranger fuck it it's garbage drew what do you got next i <laughs> It is hard for me to believe, and I really, I have trouble fathoming this, that at one point, Elliot Gould was the number one box office draw in the world. He also was like sexiest man in America or something. I know, like I know. It's mind boggling <laughs> to me because I, we look at Elliot Gould now. I can't believe that that was the 70s like pinnacle of desirable film guy, but he was. There was a there was several years. Richard Gere, Burt Reynolds, and Elliot Gould. Everyone here is crazy. Everyone else is cracking up in Dirty Tricks, the comedy that casts off into total insanity. Dirty Tricks, starring Elliot Gould. Hey, you can't come in here. This is the men's room. Kate Jackson. Hi, can I get a story? And Rich Little. 
Dirty tricks. Just good, clean, dirty fun. Rated PG. Now showing at a theater or drive-in near you. This is one of those films. I remember seeing this on uh, cable, and it's funny that the only version of this I could find anywhere to watch for this podcast, it's on YouTube, and it's cut up into pieces. And it's all from a taping from when it was on HBO. So it's got all the HBO previews before it. It's got the HBO opening, and then it's the HBO cut of the movie. Watching it again, I, I remember this thing being on incessantly. I remember that it was one of those films that seemed to play always. And man, I cannot figure what anybody would have gotten out of this thing. It is a student finds this letter that may or may not be from George Washington and steals it and then is killed for it. But he's reached out to a college professor played by Elliot Gould to verify whether it's real or not. And he gets pulled into the wacky business. Right. And this is a broad comedy, too. So the part about how the college student gets murdered. Keep that in mind. What a weird cast. Kate Jackson and Rich Little and... It's not funny at all. It is not funny in attitude. It's not funny in plot. It's not funny in sequences. I really expected there'd be something that I would be able to hang on to over the course of this thing. And there's just not even for hardcore ghoul fans. I don't think there's anything here. He's sleepwalking. And this is from that era where he was very good at sleepwalking. It just feels like he had like four months free and this happened to be available in those four months. And he went, eh. and you want to talk about, you know, the, the way guys were going to see careers kind of play out the movie. This director made right before this death ship. Talk yep. about two Calvin. totally different types of films from the same filmmaker could not be more different. What I'm noticing by going when we're doing this podcast, Drew, what I'm noticing, bad films age a lot quicker than good films. Does that make sense? 100% true. <laughs> Absolutely. Bad films date almost immediately. And it's one of the things about them that sticks out as bad. Like the, whether it's the photography, like Eyes of a Stranger is shot with all the panache of a Three's Company episode. It is ugly and flat, and that is part of what identifies it as part of this era. And the same thing is true of Dirty Tricks. Dirty Tricks looks like 70s TV. But I'm trying to think of, like, what would be a modern equivalent to something like a Dirty Tricks? Two stars are in it, and it's got, like, it opens for a week, and then it's gone. I love you, man. Yeah, I love you, man. All right, there you go. But yeah, but yeah, it's just a couple of comedy guys. It's the barest excuse for putting them together on screen. And then hopefully sparks will fly. They just don't in the case of Dirty Tricks. It's a, it's one of those films you can see where they try to put everything in motion and it just never gets started even. Okay, our next film is a uh, live action Disney piece that I remember very well from my childhood. Uh, but it stars an actress, Drew, and I have a lot of an admiration for. And this is a Disney film called Simply... Amy. Every once in a while, there comes to the screen a film of incredible optimism. I am going to teach you to speak just the way I do. Everyone knows that the deaf cannot speak. Yes, I can. A story of personal courage. You know what Mr. Moon said? No, what? He said on my birthday when I'm five, my eyes will open. That's real fine, Wesley. Amy, she was a different kind of heroine. Teach me a secret, a secret we share, Amy. Walt Disney Productions proudly presents the motion picture, Amy. Beyond words. Amy, she taught them to speak. They taught her to love. Oh, Ginny A. Gutter. Uh, to those who are, who have grown up in this generation, the lovely and very talented actress from Logan's Run and An American Werewolf in London. That is Jenny Agutter. And let me tell you, that accent made me fall in love with Great Britain forever. Good God. What a, what a lovely actress. Uh, Amy is pretty much what you'd expect as from a Disney film about a deaf girl. It's a woman who whose child dies and um, she wants to, since her child was deaf, she wants to now learn how to teach sign language to other children. And so it's about the relationship she has with one particular boy that she's teaching. And it's very, very, very Disney and very late 70s in a lot of ways. It is the kind of G-rated film where genuinely, any audience can see this movie. You will not be offended. There is nothing to worry about. I think you can rent it on YouTube if you want. And and like a lot of the Disney live action stuff from that era, it's kind of no nonsense. There's really no style to it. It just 
tells the story, gets out, and does it efficiently. And Yeah, it's not a bad movie. It's very dated. It, Jenny Agutter's is a gr- very good lead performance. It's what you would expect from an earnest Disney family drama about a, a woman who's teaching deaf children. It's, it's I think that's exactly it. It's very earnest, and, and I get the feeling that it, it was sincerely meant by everybody who stars in it, and it's got charm. Also originally produced for TV, but apparently somebody at Disney was pretty down with Amy, so they uh, turned it into a theatrical release. Well, this next one... Um, also a little tricky to track down right now, and it is an odd uh, movie in terms of the the star chemistry and the pairing here. Our next film stars Sally Field and Tommy Lee Jones, and it is the romantic adventure comedy Backroads. Sometimes the most incompatible people find a way of getting together. Hey, was that a cop that I hit? Amy and Elmore have done just that. I've known some squirrels in my life, but you are right up there at the top of the tree. In Backroads. Sally Field and Tommy Lee Jones in a story of falling into love. Backroads, rated R. Opens Friday, March 13th. Check newspapers for local listings. This is another one like uh, Coast to Coast. It reminds me so much of Coast to Coast. <laughs> uh, but it's like put two oddly fitting act good actors together and make it kind of glum and have them travel across the seedy highways of America. And there's your movie. They get that long montage during the opening credits where it's just people coupling and legs and you see people going in and out of bars and things. And you get the feeling that they were hoping to score some points and make some cogent points about the way people were coupling and the way relationships had changed and stuff. And that's not the movie at all. The movie ends up being a road comedy. And I felt like watching that opening like it was for a totally different film that somehow got cut onto this one. Yeah. Sally Field plays the world's most unlikely prostitute. Uh <laughs> Uh, and she is uh, looking to improve her life in in some respect. And Tommy Lee Jones, as what he does often, plays a uh, a rough hewn kind of a, a hustler. Through uh, happenstance, the two of them uh, travel across the country together. Dreary hilarity ensues. Now, the uh, the writer of this film also wrote a film that we just talked about last week, which was Dogs of War. And this guy had a really weird career in terms of almost everything he did was action or action comedy, except for Backroads. And it makes me wonder if an original draft of this was much more action oriented, because it seems like that's what that guy's whole deal was. He wrote the Schwarzenegger raw deal. He wrote Running Scared, the Billy Crystal one. It seems like that was his forte. This film isn't really an action film, even though I think there's sort of action-y sequences. Part of that is Martin Ritt. I'm not nuts about him as a filmmaker. We're going to see Murphy's romance from him later in this era. Yeah, his better stuff was behind him. He did The Front, I think, 76, which is fantastic. Sounder was an early one of his. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Like, this is the guy who directed HUD, for God's sakes. And then you see Backroads, and it's a left turn for him. It had to be a weird disappointment for the studio, too, because this was coming off of Norma Ray from Martin Ritt and Sally Field together. So that was her Oscar. That was like a giant moment for her. I don't know what they expected they were going to get this time, but I doubt it was Backroads. Yeah, it's not terrible. The performances are quite good, but it doesn't really leave much of a much an impression on you. Yeah. Well, this next one, you want to you want to talk about uh, Elliot Gould movies that have not aged well. This was not Elliot Gould's best month. No, it was not. As bad as Dirty Tricks is. It's a different kind of awful when you sit down for The Devil and Max Devlin. Bill Cosby is the devil. Want a light? Elliot Gould is a shady agent. But I am very good luck, and I guarantee you will not fail. And the record business is going to the devil. Roses and rainbows, you better They're swapping soul for rock and roll. Never been to the Grammys. The Devil and Max Devlin. That's just the way we like them. Rated PG. The Devil and Max Devlin now play. Okay, Drew, I saw this in theaters. This might have been one of my earliest recollections. Of, I think it was nine, uh, no, 10 or 11. And I remember distinctly liking this movie. You know what? I probably did at the time, too. I was 11. I was still like, just I'll watch almost anything. And I remember the photos in Starlog of Bill Cosby in the full devil makeup and being like, all right, I'll go check that out. First of all, that's one weird moment. In the that like, one sequence where he's in hell, you're like, is this actually a PG Disney film? What am I looking at? The The first sequence when he goes to hell is fucking bizarre. The design of hell, the way hell is executed. 
the era of Disney we're going to talk about for the most part during this podcast is the era where Disney broke completely, had no idea what they were doing anymore, and then eventually turned it around right at the end of the decade. But this is the the period where they were fucking lost. And a movie like Devil and Max Devlin, the, the female lead in this film, Julie Budd, who plays the singer... Disney thought they were going to turn her into a giant movie star. They signed her to a four-film contract. They had Marvin Hamlish come in and compose three songs for her for this film, and she only sings one of them 700 times. Dude, if you make it through this movie without that song stuck in your head, holy shit, you are a robot. It's bad, too. It's Devlin Max Devlin is about a sleazy landlord played by Elliot Gould, who smashed over run over by a bus, ends up in hell. The devil sends him back to Earth. He has to get souls from the uh, this singer, one from this little kid from Eight is Enough, and one from a dummy dirt bike driver. Oh, and that's a terrible storyline, too. And am I, am I wrong, or is Adam Rich maybe the phoniest film kid ever? He's awful. He's awful in this. Terrible actor. I know it's not always fair to judge a kid actor in the same way you would judge an adult, but he's just plain reading off cue cards bad. He's very showbiz kid. The whole thing is Elliot Gould's got to get these three people to sign the contracts, and in exchange, he'll be set free. And so... He has to kind of nurse each one of them along. He has to convince the singer that she can't perform unless he's in the auditorium. And he has to convince the kid that he's going to marry his mom and be a good dad. To he, she literally can't sing if he's not there. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fucked. And like the all the mechanics of this film are so labored and it's not funny. And by making that singer, by making it so that we follow her around and we see all her performances leading up to the final one. And by only writing her one song, so she sings that one song over and over, it gets to the point where it's grating. It's really, really hard to make it through the film because of that song. And when she does get to the final song, it's this crazy dark thing that's supposed to be a summation of her life and where she's going and how she got fucked by the industry. And that second song is nuts. Yeah, I don't want to think about that singer. I don't. What did you notice? One of the odd names in the screenwriter's credits? No, which one? Uh, story credit to Jimmy Sangster, whom horror fans will remember as a writer and co-writer on several good Hammer horror films. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there must have been at some point a much more interesting draft than what they came up with here, because if Jimmy Sangster has a story credit. There was a good screenplay at some point, somewhere. And while it may seem appropriate now that Bill Cosby shows up as the devil, it is, A, an incredibly bad performance where there's nothing interesting about what he does. He shows up, he mugs. It's hard to make Elliot Gould completely charmless when this film does that. But to make Bill Cosby not funny. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it almost defies logic. Like it is, it is so unappealing and so singularly uninteresting that it's a little bit hard to believe that it's a real film when you get to the end of it. But I can't imagine any parent these days having any interest in any Disney film that has Bill Cosby in it. So, yeah, I think this is one that is justifiably sort of lost to time at this point. We are now moving on from the devil and Max Devlin to the devil as Sam Neill in The Omen was the warning. Damien, Omen 2 was the fulfillment. Now, the trinity of living terror is complete in the final conflict. Damien Thorne is 32. He's one step away from the most important position on Earth, and the power of evil is no longer in the hands of a child. Prepare for the final conflict. Rated R starts Friday, March 20th at a select. You know, it's weird. The Omen is such a strange franchise because that first film is a beautiful standalone movie. And the first film has such a great construction. The idea that you're going to get the most famous film dad, the best film dad in the world, and you're going to make a movie where you root for him to murder his son. That's great on its own. I don't really think you ever needed to make more Omen films, but there is a natural timeline here which is you want to follow him all the way through to when he becomes the antichrist so it felt like when we walked into the theater to see the final conflict that it was set up to be a pretty big badass ride of a movie and it's just not 
I admire the idea that perhaps Damien uh, Omen 2 leaned a little too far in the let's just see if we can come up with a whole bunch of unique kills and the plot and the performances are not quite as important. Uh, and now it seems like they swing back the other way, which is let's make it a little bit more classy and a little bit more professional and let's not necessarily lean too much on the crazy kills. I think if you combine the sensibilities of Omen 2 and Omen 3, you'd have a great Omen sequel instead of two passable Omen sequels. As the adult Damien, Sam Neill is legitimately great. It was a it was a pretty great discovery. I agree. And when you see him, there's notes he plays as Damien that I think really work. And he's got a great devil's smile. Like there is something about Sam Neill that's really charming cast that way. I, I remember the makeup gag at the beginning. The suicide gag was a kind of a shocking opening to a film. Considering what the subject is, shouldn't this be like this unbelievable balls to the wall crazy thing where the president of the United States has the full force of the U.S. military and everything behind him and he's Satan on Earth? It feels like you, you really should have been a, a radically different film than this. Right. And it just it feels like it's all act one in a way. It's like, you know, he's he's positioning himself to become the right hand to the president or to be influential and to just as it's getting interesting it kind of ends. It would have been really great if David Seltzer had really stayed attached to this or Richard Donner. And if somebody had seen the whole series through and really had an overall design for things instead of it being handed off one person to another so that nobody really ever was in charge. Yeah. The all three films feel very a la carte, which is unfortunate because like you said, it does have like a, a natural three act structure of Damien as a baby, Damien as a young adult, Damien as a full adult. And, you know, if you've already invested your time in, in one and two, I wouldn't call the final conflict terrible. I think Graham Baker, the director, he got more interesting as he went. We'll, we'll cover some of his later films in the decade. But I, I think he's a guy that came into a kind of an unwinnable situation with this film. It was never going to be his. They were never going to let him make a movie that just started and did whatever he wanted to. And it was just a hard thing to pick up and run with. I, I don't think this was ever cooked properly. Um, all right. So what's the next one, Scott? A wonderful brilliant, uplifting, screwball comedy starring the... It's Gary Coleman. Lester's an orphan who's very unusual. Instead of a house, he lives in a locker in a train station. The kid picked the triple. And he has a special talent. He's a crook. That can make him rich. I want that money back. And get him in trouble. 20th Century Fox presents Gary Coleman. Smaller than ever. And in his first motion picture role, he's on the right track. Starring Maureen Stapleton, Michael Lembeck, Lisa Eilbacher, Bill Russell, Herb Edelman, and Norman Fell. We love Lester. As the mayor. On the right track. You and I are old enough to remember that Gary Coleman, when, when this movie came out, there was a real push to try and make him a movie star. And it was just never, I don't know that it was ever going to work. Like, he was so closely tied to the TV character. Yeah, here's the funny thing about Coleman, Drew. You and I are, like, we pride ourselves on, like, we know our movie facts. And if we get a fact wrong, we look it up and try to remember it for the last, for the next time, right? Can you delineate between Gary Coleman's feature films and his TV films? No, no. And Me there's no difference. They feel exactly <laughs> the same. Kid with the Broken Halo, movie yep. or TV movie? Uh, I don't know. TV movie. Okay, Jimmy the Kid. Movie or TV movie? Movie. Correct. Yes. Uh, yeah. On the Right Track is a yeah. movie about a homeless kid who earns the attention of some beautiful, lovely white people. Why? Because he has a gift, and that gift is that he can predict which horse will win the race. I feel bad for Coleman because Coleman is one of those guys who quickly identified what Knack was. And his Knack was, okay, you're a little kid, but you sound like you're a 40-year-old adult and you have all the attitude of a 40-year-old adult. Ha ha. But that's it. That's that's all the joke they ever wrote for him in anything. And it must have been dispiriting to realize that it was constantly going to be about your size. It was constantly going to be about the fact that you're little. It's going to like there were certain things that were going to be in everything you ever did. It's little wonder that Gary Coleman learned to hate the industry and really seemed bitter by not long after this. Like, I think it happened very quickly. And can you blame him when you look at what Hollywood did with him? The machine that does it to everybody. If a kid is a breakout star on a TV show, they're going to wedge him into three movies. And like, do they care if uh, they're good films or not? No, they're going to grab the kid while they're hot. And, you know, On the Right Track is a very banal, generic 
paint by numbers, family comedy. If you saw On the Right Track when you were a kid and you vaguely remember liking it, you're the only person out there who does. No one else does. <laughs> like, so don't don't see it again because you're going to ruin that memory. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely don't. I just I, I wonder what would have happened if, if like a real director had just cast him in a movie, not a movie where he's Gary Coleman, but just a film. Just cast him as a kid. That's all. I know. That, that's what's that's what's depressing is you. These, these guys never really even had a chance to stretch their legs after stardom kicked in because it trapped them in a certain way. Our next film this week is oddly timely sort of right now. You could make the argument, but you want to talk about a film that does not deliver on the premise that it sets up. This is a movie called Harry's War. I declare war on the Internal Revenue Service of the United States. I'm challenging the right of the IRS to assess, harass, intimidate, and seize property of the citizens without due process. Now, to those of you who love the late Edward Herman, uh, as most of us do, and start to wonder, gee, why did the guy never have more leading roles? Well, he's pretty good in this movie, but it's really not very good. Yeah, the movie is about a guy whose whose aunt dies and she is uh, battling the IRS when she passes away. And because that happens, he becomes agitated and decides he's going to beat them no matter what. There is something great and populist and sort of Frank Capra about the idea of I'm going I'm just a normal guy and I'm going to go up against the IRS and fight them. This movie ends with tanks. It is so wrongheaded in how it actually plays out. That good idea that is in there somewhere gets lost because this guy has no idea what to do with it as a writer director. This is the kind of stuff we'll see later in the decade in legend of Billy Jean or uh, Turk 182. It's got to light hedges, a lot of bets. This is the same director who brought us wind Walker in our last episode, Keith Merrill. And this one he wrote and directed. I don't really know what the point is. Like it to me feels like such a scattershot attempted social satire and Talk about never picking a target, man. I never figuring out what your target really is. I, I hate to overuse the Capra thing, but it really feels like he saw Mr. Smith goes to Washington and says, hmm, we'll do that, but we'll rail against the IRS. Done. End of story. So that's Harry's war. And the irony is between watching it, taking notes and finding the film took me about five hours. We talk about it 80 seconds and we're done. <laughs> Bye, Harry's war. Bye, Harry's war. Edward Herman, you're a you're a brilliant, wonderful actor with an amazing speaking voice. If his agent was going to try to make him a leading man, he deserved better. So now we move on to another horror film. And this is one that most of our generation probably loved as a kid. I hate to keep banging this drum, but if you love this horror film, maybe just leave it tucked firmly in your memory banks. And, and it's, while it's not terrible, I don't know if I would necessarily recommend a revisit to... The Fun House. Something is alive in the Fun House. Something not alive like its father. Something better dead. Something that has the form of a human, but not the face. This better be good. It's gonna be great. Something that feeds off the flesh and blood of young innocents. Something that tonight will turn the Fun House into a carnival of terror. The Fun House, coming soon from Universal Pictures. The Fun House, it's a carnival of terror from Toby Hooper, the director who terrified you with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What was it about Toby Hooper working for the studios that seemed to go so terribly wrong? I've recently been going back and reading old Fangorias from 80, 81, 82, kind of that era. I believe the proper plural of Fangoria is Fangorier. Ah, so I've been reading many of the Fangorier, and one of the things that is interesting is how troubled the Funhouse was and for how long it was troubled. Like, it, they, they started talking about problems on it probably a year before they finally did the cover where they did the Funhouse and did the big interview. I don't get it. How could a film that simplistic be that troubled? Well, I think they shot it almost twice. I think there was a, a big reshoot to try and fix the first version of this film. And I'd be curious to know... Like, how much is directly Toby? How much was taken from Toby? And how much was forced on Toby? And I don't really know the answers with this movie, but it doesn't work as a film. I remember the book that... Dean Koontz. Dean Koontz wrote the novelization. And and I love the book. The book, like you said, speaking to what you said, the book came out 
like eight or 10 months before the movie did. So for years, everybody assumed that Dean Koontz wrote a novel and they made the Funhouse based on a Dean Koontz novel. No, it's the opposite. You know, this is a cast of, of people that were kind of on the verge of, of breaking out. Elizabeth Barrage, uh, who I think is most recognizable from this decade uh, in Amadeus, where she plays Wolfgang's uh, wife. Uh, Kevin Conway is the Barker in this thing. Kevin Conway from Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a lot of really uh, William Finley is in this, who I love because of Phantom of the Paradise and because of his work with De Palma. Like, it's an interesting cast. Drew, what's the main problem with this movie? Well, the main problem with this movie is that it's not really about the carnival. And the carnival is the scariest fucking thing you could play with. They're, the freak shows and the carnival people. And this movie really isn't about that at all and i i don't i don't get the the focus of the film even about what what the what's supposed to be scary or what the storyline is they miss what they have which is a fucking crazy carnival okay yeah the 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 premise uh for what it is it's about a group of young teenagers who decide they're going to spend the night in a creepy local uh fun house and then while they're in there they witness a murder and make their presence known by accident and then spend the rest of the film kind of trying to stay away from the head carnival barker and his hideously deformed freak of a son. There's a lot of red meat in there. That sounds like that should be great. This movie's 95 minutes, and the first moment of suspense or horror takes place at minute 48. Now, I'm all for a long, I don't mind a nice setup if you're going to set up the characters. There's a slow burn and then there's no burn. I don't mind a slow burn, but this movie has almost an hour of no burn. This is a movie that needs to be remade. I know Eli Roth was attached to a remakes of this several years ago, but that project died. A huge opportunity. I really do think that there's there's an opportunity there. And dude, fun houses and freak shows and barkers and carnies, all of that is awesomely creepy. You can do so much with that. If somebody owns this, I think Universal released the film. I don't know who actually owns the movie, but if it's them. They really should hand it to Bloomhouse and give it to somebody there who's going to be hungry and want to do something fun with it. As far as the, the Toby Hooper scale of horror movies, I'd put it right in the middle. Once it starts, once it starts getting to the horror, the last you know thirty five minutes has some good jumps and some decent makeup. But yeah, the 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 uh, deformed dude, it's a pretty decent makeup. Find something scary or ominous or or atmospheric in your first forty five minutes, and we might have something. Uh, Our next film might be my favorite movie of this episode, and it still stands as my favorite Michael Mann film, as much as I hate those people who say, oh, I like their early stuff and not their late stuff, because Michael Mann has made some good films later. But I truly admire James Caan in Thief. You've been putting down two, three scores a month. You want to put down contract scores all over the country? Working directly for me? I am self-employed. Just diamonds or cash. Fine. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I'm a thief. We got a problem. I want my money. I am the last guy you want to mess with. James Caan, Thief. Thief is one of those movies that the first time I saw it, it was so distinct and it felt so unlike any other crime movie. My dad took me to see this. I have a dad story about this movie, too, but you go first. <laughs> it was it was one of those. He saw the poster and we were there to see something else. I think it was during Christmas time that we saw the poster for the first time. And I just remember I always remember when my dad would stop because not a lot of movies caught his attention. He would walk by a lot of the posters and not give a shit and they weren't like his cup of tea, but that one stopped him cold and he leaned in and I remember him looking at it and going, James Caan, huh? All right, I'll see that. And I talked him into taking me when he went and it was one of those bonding experiences where on the way home, I was so blown away by the style of that film, by the confidence and by the fact that it felt like This is how it really works. This is how professional thieves make a living. This is how actual burglaries go. This is it. This is reality. That was such an interesting and sort of intoxicating thing that this film did. And it was what made it distinct. It felt lived in and real. My my dad's story with Thief was is kind of similar, but a little sadder in the end. Must have been, I don't know, 83 or 84. uh, And the movie had hit HBO. 
And somehow my father knew that it was on HBO. I, I can only assume that how parents work is somebody at, at work had told him that it was a good movie. Because where else would a parent know anything about a movie, right? So I, I assume that one of the firemen at the, ho- at the firehouse told my dad that Thief was really good. My grandmother had HBO. We didn't. But we went over to my grandmother's one night. And it was like kind of a big deal. Like my dad wanted to see a movie. Holy crap. And I remember we sat down. We watched Thief. My mom, my grandmother, and my dad all were enraptured by it. I was bored to tears and my, da- and my dad got really mad at me and he was like, go watch TV in the other room then. And then for years, whenever it would be like, mm, do I feel like watching Thief? I like Michael Mann. I, I thought of that anecdote and was like, oh, well, my dad threw me out of this movie. <laughs> but I watched it three nights ago and I'm really hot and cold on Michael Mann. Sometimes I think he's great and sometimes his stuff just does not, you know, he's clearly a great filmmaker. I don't think I blinked during Thief. It's so stripped down, man. It is so well made. There's one sequence with Tuesday Weld where they're sitting in a restaurant talking about their their past and their present and their maybe future. I think the sequence maybe runs 12 minutes. That's when you realize this is a character piece. This is not a crime procedural. Is it safe to call this Jim Belushi's best performance? Yeah, Jim Belushi is one of uh, the thief's uh, partners in crime. He's quite good. Willie Nelson's good. Robert Prosky's good. Robert Prosky should have been nominated for this movie. Robert Prosky, who most people remember as the slimy garage owner in Christine, who famously in that movie said, you can't polish a turd. Fantastic. In this movie, this movie does such a great job of like making a character seem big and small at the same time. The Robert Prosky character is supposed to be like this intimidating local vicious kingpin. But in the grand scheme of the crime city, he's nothing. He's small potatoes. Towards the end, he's just pure evil. And he's so so good. And James Caan. Oh, well, James Caan and Tuesday Well together in this are terrific. And she's an actor who I, I really feel like the filmmaker has to have a strong hand and you can get something really wonderful out of her but it takes a filmmaker who's willing to go that extra mile man's wonderful with her she's really good in this and the score Oh, man. Yo, is that that's uh, one tangerine dream, right? Yeah. And beautifully photographed. I mean, it's one of those. It's there's a reason that Michael Mann stuff was immediately ripped off for TV was it set such a great sense of style. And uh, Dennis Farina shows up in an early part here. And it's that that whole thing where Michael Mann was one of the guys who kind of made Dennis Farina an actor as opposed to just a consultant because he really came from that world. And I I think that's what this film has going for it is it feels so grounded and real. And as a Jerry Bruckheimer produced film, this is totally different than everything else Bruckheimer had his name on in that era. I know the film was released by Criterion for good reason. It's a very good film. Thief plays like somebody said, hey, that profession fascinates me. And I want to make a film about what fascinates me about that lifestyle. And to make it so visually impressive, such an interesting story. I think Thief might be might be my pick of the month. I've got a couple of films that I, I might put up against it. This next one is is a film that I would stack right up next to Thief in terms of being a movie that both deserves a bigger audience than it had when it came out, but that has aged. It has gotten better the farther we've gotten away from it because we can see how much it is not of its time. It is a movie that stands on its own and does its own thing and has its own energy. I'm talking about Ivan Passer's film version of Cutter's Way. Introducing Alex Cutter. Cutter's wife, Mo. Cutter's best friend, Richard Bone. Their life together wasn't exactly ordinary, but they never bargained for Cutter's fantasy. Tony, what are you gonna do? <laughs> it's not a question of what I'm gonna do. It's a question of what you're gonna do with the time you got left. <laughs> begun to let my imagination loose on this one. John Hurd, Jeff Bridges, and Lisa Eichhorn in Cutter's Way, a film by Yvonne Passer, 
from UA Classics. This uh, is a film that I had never seen prior to last week. I had barely, vaguely known what it was about. Of course, I knew it starred Jeff Bridges, an actor that we all adore. But I knew very little about it. I, was it a crime story? Was it about two two drug addicts? Was, I mean, what was it? About two soldiers? I don't know. Well, they had the hardest time selling it. And it was a movie that it came out. The studio didn't know what to do with it. Critics started telling them it's great. And they still didn't know what to do with it. And so it came out under two different titles. It was Cutter and Bone at one point. Then it was Cutter's Way. And I think it's so hard to describe what it is, even after you've seen it. It's a really hard film yeah, to summarize. Like our previous film, it's not necessarily plot driven. It's more about these two guys and like, I guess, honor amongst thieves, but not even thieves, but like. When you're when you're broke and desperate and low, does loyalty have any value? These are two guys who who served in Vietnam together and they came back. And uh, Lisa Icorn, who was the actor who was cut from all night long. She's the one who Barbara Streisand took her role and she got fired two weeks into production. This was the film that put her on the map for a lot of Hollywood. There was a lot of early buzz about her work in this movie. And she plays Mo, who is married to Cutter, the John Hurd character. She's attracted to Jeff Bridges' character, Richard Bone, but so is everybody. Bone's kind of a gigolo. Like, he sleeps with older women. That's how he makes money. He's just kind of a drifter. Both of these guys came back from non-broken, and they handled it in different ways. And Mo is the thing that between them that kind of holds their friendship together because there's no real reason they should still be friends in America. They are so different. But that Vietnam experience and whatever it was they shared there bonds them. And so John Hurt gets this crazy idea that they're going to solve the murder, turn over corruption, and he's a crazy person. And Jeff Bridges keeps going along with him, hoping that it will fix his friend in some way. And that's what, to me, is the big drive through the film is, can I keep Cutter alive long enough for Cutter to get better? Or is Cutter just going to keep fucking things up and making a production out of stuff and being a train wreck as loud as he is. That's wonderful the way they play that between them. I am haunted by Lisa Icorn's work. The hard-boiled character that she is, her final sequence in the film is haunting. And she is so good. I'm a little blown away that she is so muscular as an actor and that she did not immediately become the top of everyone's list that they wanted to work with. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get to Lisa Eichhorn uh, moving forward in, in other films. But John Hurd uh, might, I mean, Jeff Bridges, everybody knows how great Jeff Bridges is. But John Hurd is a crazily underrated actor. Am I wrong, Drew? I would compare the work he does here to what John Savage did in Inside Moves that we were talking about, where there's a physical aspect to it that is just technically very impressive, even before you get to all the emotional stuff that he's doing. But heard in this movie, he's got the eye patch. He's got the one arm. He's given a lot of limitations as an actor. And Heard plays the anger of that. He plays a guy who is convinced that the world has taken enough shit from him and it's not going to get one more piece. And that is what drives Cutter through every encounter he has in the film. And he's wrong most of the time. But that's what's amazing is you watch anyway because you get it. He is just railing against all the shit that's already been piled onto him. Uh, warning, you know, it is kind of a... This is not a rock'em, sock'em, fast-paced movie, but it is a really uh, well-hewn character piece. Uh, you know, th these are these are characters written as if they were real people. This is not supposed to be, oh, they're two Vietnam vets. No, no, these are specific people. They're not just generic veterans. It's a very good film. <sighs> and then our next film. I think this will hold the record for the quickest we've ever gone through a movie, Drew. Oh, this will be, be fast. Scared to death, a.k.a. Sinjinor. If you think you're frightened by the unknown, wait until you face reality. Scared to death. Thank God it's only a movie from Lone Star Pictures, rated R. Drew, do you, do you think, could you describe the plot to this massive, to this wonderful film? Oh, boy. Um, a cop. Yes. Who's yes. a writer. Yep. Has to solve some murders. Dude, this thing looks like it was shot in an alley by some guy who just found a camera. Yeah, it's, you know, William Malone did an episode of a, uh, 
Masters of Horror, and he's worked since then, and he did a couple of the uh, Dark Castle films. This is his starting point, and it's like, basically, he said, I can make a monster mask, and they went, okay, well, then you can make a movie. And that's it, man. That's all he's got going for him in this film. It is not an interesting script. It's not a clever premise. He's got a monster mask. I never would have watched it if it wasn't for this stupid podcast. This is a tough, tough sit. I would not advise it for anybody listening. No, let's just move on. Now, here's my contender for best film that we're going to talk about this time. Uh, This is the movie that Stanley Kubrick once called a perfect film. It is a movie that I was obsessed with uh, for many years. It was not available on home video for a long time. And I hold very dear my DVD copy of Albert Brooks's Modern Romance. Don't call me this time. After Robert broke up with Mary. Wait a minute, though. Come back. We can at least eat. He took vitamins. He started running. He started dating. He had everything a modern guy could want. Robert Cole, everything you do from this moment on will only make you feel better. He felt awful. Columbia Pictures presents Albert Brooks and Catherine Harold in Modern Romance. Rated R. Check newspapers for a theater near you. If you want the proof of how much I love this movie, grab that DVD, flip it over, and look on the back. I'm jealous. That's like having a quote on used cars. I'm jealous that you're quoted on Modern Romance. I was like a small feather in my cap. I was like, oh, I I love being quoted on this one. This is such a sensational comedy. It starts at the end of every other romantic comedy. It starts with a couple breaking up, and it's Albert Brooks and Catherine Harold. This is something that they've done over and over and over. It is their pattern. They get back together. They break up. They get back together. They break up. So we pick up at a breakup, and we watch him try to move on and get his life back together, and we know he's not going to. The movie is about a couple that is constantly in each other's orbit. Every single major set piece in this film destroys the opening sequence. When he goes home and Bruno Kirby, who is his assistant editor, he's a film editor in the film. Albert Brooks plays a film editor. His assistant gives him some quaaludes to go home and just take your quaaludes and mellow out. That's one of the greatest scenes in any comedy released in the 80s is just him at home trying to get ready to go to sleep after dropping ludes. It's awesome. Every scene is like that. It's one great, beautiful piece of writing after another. Aside from it simply being a great vehicle for Albert Brooks's neurotic, anti-romantic humor, it is so honest. You need to see modern romance. Catherine Harold, I, I think, is very underrated as a comic actress, and she's great here. There's a flintiness, and there's an edge to her, and she's she is not just... The pretty face. You get the relationship between them because uh, Robert's a mess, but so is she. And the, they feed each other's mess in interesting ways. And like Bruno Kirby is unbelievably funny in this film. There's a, a phenomenal sequence in this movie where they are cutting a film and it's not working. And they're going through a library of sound effects, trying to find the right sound effect. There's a Hulk joke in this movie that is maybe one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Bob Einstein, who's Albert Brooks's brother, who most people know as Super Dave, has a phenomenal scene where he's selling him health goods to get him ready to go jog and get healthy. And man, James L. Brooks, for God's sake, shows up in this movie and is so funny as a director who can not make his mind up about anything. No, it's a great example of a movie that can be just a vehicle for a comedian, but is also much more. You know, it is if you just like Albert Brooks form of of humor, you'll laugh a lot during modern romance. But if you don't know Albert Brooks from a a hole in the ground, you're still going to be able to get something out of modern romance because it is an honest, trenchantly honest movie about they're both so fractured in, in such perfect ways that I guess that's kind of what a lot of relationships are. It also made You Are So Beautiful permanently funny. That song is not sentimental. I hear it and I start laughing because this film uses it so well. Yeah. Modern Romance, uh, up there with Albert Brooks's best, maybe from in my book, not quite as accomplished as like uh, Defending Your Life or Lost in America. But according to Brooks, after this movie came out, he heard through Steven Spielberg, who had become friendly with Stanley Kubrick by that point. Stanley loves your movie. And he wants to get in touch with you. And the way Stanley Kubrick would get in touch with you back then was by fax. So Albert didn't even have a fax machine. He bought one 
so that Stanley Kubrick could reach out to him. And then what would happen? Anybody who was friends with him described the relationship this way. You would get these faxes that would start at two in the morning and you get like 75 pieces of paper and it would just be something that Kubrick had on his mind that he wanted you to read too. And then he would call you afterwards and quiz you about it. And it got to where Albert Brooks loved him so much and loved the conversation, but said eventually he had to change his number and not give it to Kubrick because it was just so much stuff that he would send. The idea that he had that friendship with him and then eventually just went, I- I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to take a step back. It's <laughs> that, that blows my mind, man. I, I can't imagine what that was like. We have two more films. Uh, one, a very small film that had a limited release, but it's worth noting because of the filmmaker involved. And the other one, a fairly big movie star release. So let's do the little one first. Scott? If you uh, are a film buff of the 1980s and your paths have not crossed with Jim Jarmusch, you're not doing it right. This was his debut feature. It is an, not surprisingly, an odd movie about a guy who kind of meanders through New York City. And we're talking, for those of you unfamiliar with it, about Jim Jarmusch's debut feature, Permanent Vacation. Reminds me of Slacker. You get the feeling that part of the point was just to be able to to use New York and just kind of make it a character and just play around a little bit. And it's there's a lot of what I love about Jarmusch suggested here. I don't feel like this one connects the way even Stranger Than Paradise did. There's a reason that I think Stranger Than Paradise broke him out fine. And not to be dismissive, but it, this does play like a, a, a good student film. It's worth seeing if you're a fan. You should definitely track it down because I think Jarmusch is a guy whose voice is so special and unique. And when we do get to Down by Law and Stranger Than Paradise later in this decade, I'll rant and rave at that point. But it's a really interesting start. And it's actually the last Jarmusch film I saw. Like, I caught up with it very late. I did not see it at the time. And, you know, it didn't make the same splash that later films did. It's worthwhile if you like him and if you want to see where he began. Yeah, it's a first timers film. And, you know, uh, I wouldn't call it a bad movie, but I don't know if I get it. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to move on in our final film of this week. Uh, it was a pretty big deal when it was released. Uh, this was, I would say, maybe the most hyped movie of the month. And it was hyped for a number of reasons. First, the cast, the idea that it was Jack Nicholson and Bob Raffleson working together again, the adaptation of the James Kane novel, which was a beloved classic film noir piece, uh, one of the essential texts of the uh, genre. And David Mamet wrote the adaptation. This was a movie that was presented as you are going to see fireworks when you get into the theater we're speaking about the postman always rings twice a drifter looking for something a woman ready for anything two people in love it's just us it's just you and me i'm tired of what's right and wrong in love and out of control. Who are you calling? Jack Nicholson, Jessica Lang, in the motion picture that Playboy magazine calls hotter than any uncurbed passion since last tango in Paris. The Postman always rings twice. This is one of those films that was sold on, and this happens every so often. Don't Look Now is a movie that has this reputation. Uh, There are certain modern films that have the reputation, but I remember one of the things that they talked about in magazines as mainstream as like Time Magazine and Newsweek was that supposedly they're really fucking. And it was sold on the heat and the charge and the you won't believe the explosive sexual chemistry between Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange. And this is not. Yeah. As you mentioned, this is not a it's a very old ploy for movie marketing. Body Heat did the same thing. Yeah. they. It was like, you're going to see some hardcore, yeah, something raunchy to get you all worked up. And let me tell you, I, I know this was made in 1981. That sex scene is still freaking steamy. Really? To me, that. That scene is the movie like there's so much about the film that I don't think really connects. And I think the second half is dull. It's it's kind of a drag once it starts getting where it's going. But the first half of that film, it builds really well. And there is a real sense that when these two do connect, it's going to be explosive. And that sequence, that's everything Raffleson and Nicholson and Lang wanted to do with the movie in one scene. And then once that scene is over, a lot of the heat dissipates. It's never quite as tense or as crazy you know what? for the rest Isn't of the film. Isn't that part of the point, though? 
that that like at that moment, the heat of their passion is all that matters. And then, you know, a week later, they're just two more potential criminals screwing in a motel. Like, well, and the thing I do they, like is the cynical, the cynical nature of that second half and how they start to wear on each other. And that that I like. And I think some of that really works. I think Mamet was great at scenes. I think Mamet structurally in his early work as a screenwriter was less confident. I think he was excellent at scenes. The film's longer than it needs to be. That's for sure. Well, I mean, the basic plot is a drifter comes into town and falls in love with his uh, what he's like a truck stop owner's wife. And they have a very, very steamy affair uh, right under his nose. And they at one point they're going to skip town together. But then there's problems at the airport. So they just go back and they're like resigned to sticking with this charade. Well, and then it goes a lot further than you think it's going to, because the trial is a huge part of this. And it's not just are they going to get away with things? It's now that they've been caught. How do they handle that? And are they going to eat each other? Yeah, the betrayal of, of like who is narked on whom. And, you know, it is very in, in a good way, very 1940s, like the like very hard boiled and sexy. I feel like Angelica Houston's in the wrong film. I don't know what her the digression with her is all about. Like, it's a strange character and a strange appearance. And yeah, there's there's uh, some subplots that the film doesn't entirely need that is, it seems like are tossed in for color. Uh, but yeah, a Postman Always Rings Twice is, you know. It's a it's a good remake. It's a good noir. It's a good sexy thriller. It is Nicholson at a point where um, I think Nicholson was at his most movie star polished. Um, this is the Nicholson that I think of when I think of Jack Prime Nicholson. He certainly doesn't come across like a typical romantic or sexy leading man type. But in certain films, he tries to convince us that he is irresistible to women and we buy it. And that was like movies like this and The Witches of Eastwick, where it's like Jack Nicholson doesn't really look like a ladies man, but he's so good at convincing us that he is. I had a good time with this. I I had seen the uh, original version. I I went on a crazy binge. I probably watched 60 film noir in half a year. And I really like the original, and I'm glad I finally caught up with the remake. Uh, and uh, I think our listeners will dig that one too. It's definitely, it's definitely worth seeing, and especially for the movie star performances. They are both young and pretty, and really at the height of their power. Here. I, I like, I love Lang when she's bad. Jessica Lang, we talked about it before. She's a really, she grew into such a good actor. But I like her so much more. And this was part of that rehab because you got to remember after King Kong, she was a joke and people really treated her poorly in the press. So this was the beginning of that sort of turnaround where directors started to use her right and critics started to realize who she was. Imagine watching her performance in King Kong and then immediately watching this right afterwards. Yeah. Like you, you would think it's like, is that her big sister? How did that woman become that woman? She is a force of nature. I can see that. Well, next month, the April 1981 list, we have an unbelievable lineup again and i it's interesting because there's really great movies in in some of these months now this this month we had thief we had modern romance we had postman always rings twice we had really good film uh, oh Cutter's dude Way. we had singenor uh so next month we've got a phenomenal susan sarandon movie we've got a very early oliver stone movie we've got an abel ferrara film that i think Still is one of his very best. We have Ringo Starr, Elvis Presley, Rucker Hauer, Sylvester Stallone, and werewolves, for God's sake. We've got werewolves next month. It's going to be so much fun. Scott, I'm excited. For those of you who are Patreon subscribers, we also recorded a phenomenal interview with the wonderful Nancy Allen. I was I was home. I was at home, and I got a call from my agent and said, you know, there's a script uh, being messenger to you right now. If you can take a look at it, they, you know, they want to meet you. It's Paul Verhoeven. I thought, Oh my God, Paul Verhoeven, soldier of orange. And that was really his only film that I was aware of at that point. And I thought, Oh my God, this is a great director. The script arrives. I look at it and it says Robocop. So I called my agent and said, I think they're changing this title, right? This is a terrible <laughs> title. No one's going to see this. And I said, he said, well, just read it. And I said, okay. So I, I thought, well, I'll read a little bit now because somehow the title threw me and I thought this is going to be crap, you know. So I turned the first page and the second page and the third page and I couldn't put it down. That is for Patreon subscribers exclusively. If you're interested, please follow the link from our 80s all over site to the Patreon page. We would love to have you come on board. This is just the beginning. We're going to put together some great content for yeah, you guys. We have, uh, aside from Miss Nancy Allen, we talk, uh, what do we talk about, Drew? We covered uh, Blowout, Dress to Kill, Robocop, 
Uh, Poltergeist 3. What did we, we uh, talked about? 1941, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And she was so up for the conversation. So she I, was, uh, I think she gave us over an hour. She was gracious and sweet. She was everything we had hoped she would be, the great Nancy Allen. Soon, uh, in, in upcoming weeks, we're going to interview Leah Thompson, uh, Barbara Crampton, Amanda Wiss, and uh, writer, uh, of course, the writer of Die Hard and many other good films, Stephen D'Souza. We hope to keep going with these interviews. They're a lot of fun, and uh, we think that they're a good way to uh, reward our patrons. So thank you so much for uh, subscribing to the podcast, those who have. And those who just listen to the free episodes, we love you too. Please rate and review us at iTunes. Every time you do that, it helps. It gets more people to pay attention to the, the podcast. Uh, spread the word, guys. If there's websites that you think should be covering the podcast or talking about it, please, you guys are the ones that are going to carry that message out there. You've been so great about uh, everything you've said back to us so far. We're having a very, very good time with uh, watching you guys watch the movies uh, and discovering things. I'm hoping that this time you guys will give Cutter's Way and Modern Romance a try. I guess that's all for me this time. Scott, you have anything else? Nope. We'll see you next time. <laughs>